History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hey, History of Persia fans. Before Persia, another civilization controlled the Middle East, the very first civilization, the inventors of writing itself. From the clay tablets of ancient Mesopotamia come the oldest stories. The history and myth of the first Mesopotamians is the subject of the Oldest Stories podcast online at oldeststories.net. If you like ancient history, come check out the Oldest Stories after you listen to this episode. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 76, The Greater Persepolis Area. The last numbered episode was all about Persian education, how it worked, what may have been included, and how Cyrus the Younger fits into all of that. This time, we're drifting even further away from straightforward narrative and into general stuff about the Achaemenid Empire. Strictly speaking, this episode doesn't have to go here. I could have, and arguably should have, talked about some of this stuff about 60 episodes ago. But I didn't, because I had other things then, and wanted to pat out some of these later kings. Today, we're going to talk about what was going on at Persepolis beyond the palace walls, because I'm afraid I might have overplayed how isolated the palace complex really was. That said, for those that skip anything that says announcement, I do encourage you to go back and listen to the actual most recent episode. If for no other reason, there is a mini-episode about coinage minted by the satraps at the end. But for those that missed it, here are the cliff notes. There is now a History of Persia podcast store, shipping more or less worldwide with t-shirts, sweaters, mugs, and other stuff. Find it at historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.store. If you've been enjoying weekly releases, there's now a Patreon goal to keep that going. I want to either double the number of patrons or the number of total listeners. New patrons before September will receive a free sticker, and patrons at the King of Kings tier and above now get other merchandise-related promotions, too. Also, 
you just heard from everyone over at the Intelligent Speech Conference. It's a one-day event to hear from all sorts of history podcasters and other educational podcasts. You get access to recordings even after the conference is over, so you should buy tickets at intelligentspeechconference.com and use the promo code PERSIA to get a discount. It's on June 25th, and my presentation will even tie in a bit with today's episode. As always, all of the relevant sort of links will be down in the episode description. In the past, I've done my best to explain how Persepolis was not really a city in any true sense. It didn't have rows of residential buildings, market squares, lots of full-time residents, or any of the other things we associate with a major capital. When the king was in residence, a whole ton of nobles, commoners, slaves, merchants, craftsmen, and other hangers-on would follow him and take up residence in the surrounding plain. This wasn't an ad hoc, everyone just pitching their tents all over the place. There was presumably a system to it that segregated the poor from the wealthy and so on. But the important thing is, there's no evidence for permanent structures to house all of those people. So the general assumption is that they stayed in sturdy, elaborate tents. Think more like a yurt than a tarp draped over some sticks. They were mobile, but still semi-permanent structures. The early kings even stayed in a huge version of those tents, which eventually served as the model for the Hall of 100 Columns, as discussed in the last episode about Persepolis under Artaxerxes I. However, that hall and the surrounding palaces didn't look down on nothing but tents. There were several large stone buildings as well. In fact, there were a series of small clusters of stone buildings stretching off into the distance for miles around. Beginning at about 5 kilometers away from the palace, archaeologists consider the largest of these clusters to be their own separate villages. You could theoretically argue that this was a very loosely packed urban sprawl. Elements of the Persepolis administrative archives definitely support that. But it was also so loosely packed that the same argument would have the Persepolis city limits stretching hundreds of kilometers, encompassing most of Parsa as a province. Still, there is a definite area around the palace complex that seems more tightly packed and could be the Persepolis metropolitan area. That extends at most 15 kilometers or 10 miles to the north, south, and west. Even that is a pretty huge area to consider one city by ancient standards. Babylon, probably the largest city in the world at the time, was about 9 kilometers square. Athens was more like 4. By the time you were 5 kilometers away from the palace terrace, the villages did start to have their own functioning local administration. Beyond that, in any direction, Evidence for Achaemenid habitation is pretty sparse out to the 15-kilometer mark. Additional 
clearly independent Achaemenid sites appear after that. So you could make an argument for that as the kind of suburban, exurban, rural interspace between cities. Regardless of how you try to explain things away, the Persian city is, ironically, a hard place to actually define as a city. Since the palace was built on a terrace at a sort of northeast to southwest angle on a mountainside, there was not a lot of room to build immediately north or east of the terrace. The small northern area may have had some religious complex. There's a few small structures of totally unknown purpose, and the remains of a quote-unquote pedestal temple called the Fratadara Complex. It was enhanced after the Achaemenid period, but probably started as a short pavilion with an altar at the back, similar to some other early fire altars. Interestingly, there's no evidence for any way to directly access that area from the main terrace. Any king going up to that space would have to take the long way, down the western stairs and up around the outside walls of the palace. The area sometimes termed the Lower City took up the space immediately outside of the fortification walls to the south and west. Even this was not one contiguous group of outbuildings. Persepolis South and Persepolis West are considered separate sites. Persepolis South was clearly an extension of the administrative and residential complex up on the terrace. It is not entirely clear when this section was built, as it could have served to augment the main palace while it was still under construction, but it is also behind the southern stairs that archaeologists think acted as a maintenance entrance to the workers at Persepolis before the reign of Artaxerxes I and it would seem weird to put your friend's palace next to the back staircase. For my money, I think Persepolis South probably came later, maybe around the current point in our narrative, or maybe as part of Artaxerxes I's projects. Xerxes built a series of storage rooms blocking the main palace from view if you were standing in this lower space. That would seem an odd choice when the alternative would have been to simply remind the residents of royal power through artwork and inscriptions on the outer walls. If it came later, Persepolis South may just reflect the necessity of expanding the complex to accommodate more royals and more nobles over time, and they would simply have used the available space. The best way to visualize the area is probably through Google Earth, if I'm being honest. Not Google Maps, but the higher quality images from the actual Google Earth website. The satellite imagery makes it a lot easier to picture than some of the images taken by archaeologists and tourists from the ground. The southern complex was made up of at least three freestanding buildings, and one massive palatial building that was probably constructed as five or six interconnected but somewhat separate structures. This palace, 
since it was almost definitely a palace of some kind, is more than half the size of the royal terrace. As a huge permanent building, it probably housed a lot of the year-round administrators in Parsa, potentially including the mayor of Persepolis, who also functioned as the satrap of Parsa when the king was away. Much like the terrace itself, this palace was a series of small rooms surrounding large open courtyards. There were one or two small audience chambers for large gatherings, and probably some open-air corridors in between the main buildings. What seems to have been the central courtyard at the heart of this southern palace may actually have been larger than any open space left on the terrace by 400 BC. South and west of the southern palace, there are a few small buildings and some general evidence of other structures that may have been the buffer between the palaces and the surrounding area. One of these structures looks like it may have been a gate based on its architectural footprint and its similarities to other palace gates like the Gate of All Nations. That would indicate some kind of intentional entrance. Immediately northeast of the large southern palace was another mansion of some kind. It too is large, at least compared to any of the individual buildings on the terrace, but not massive in the overall scheme of the city. North of that, and closest to the terrace itself, is another building that could have been a gate, or potentially some kind of audience hall or pavilion. Its design is very similar to that of the Apadana, though much smaller, with just four columns on the inside. Persepolis West is a bit of a sad story. The last really meaningful attempt at an excavation there was in the 1890s. But as Western and Iranian archaeologists alike got more access to the palace terrace, the allure of grand palaces and new inscriptions was undeniable. To their credit, the Persepolis excavations of the early 20th century greatly enhanced our understanding of the Achaemenids through things like the Fortification Archive, and they had no way to know that Persepolis West was doomed to be buried under a mountain of ego. In preparing for his celebration of 2,500 years of monarchy on the 2,500th anniversary of Cyrus conquering Babylon, Muhammad Reza Shah bulldozed and buried most of Persepolis West to build a lavish park, as well as the accompanying facilities and parking lot. Some of this was ultimately always going to be necessary to make Persepolis a tourist attraction and spread interest in Achaemenid history. However, the massive park, right on top of a well-known, if not well-understood, western city, is a historical shame, and the location chosen for the park facilities doesn't demonstrate any competent analysis of archaeological sites. Since then, only the most minimal effort to excavate western Persepolis has even been made, 
and many of those studies remain unpublished or vague in hopes of publishing later with more dramatic findings. The most recent project was in 2009, when an Italian and Iranian team dug several trenches in the area west of the modern parking lot, after local farmers or maintenance revealed evidence of Achaemenid inhabitation. Their trenches and geomagnetic imaging confirmed the presence of a relatively dense Achaemenid complex in the western part of the city, but not much more. We know from early 20th century reports that there were some stone buildings in the park area, but there's no reference to any smaller residences. And that's about all we're able to confirm about that space at this time. There is real concern that the Shah's Park may have destroyed significant portions of the possible evidence. Ironically, all in the name of celebrating Achaemenid history. Eh, I guess sign up for Intelligent Speech if you want to hear more about that. Just west of the park, the only well-published Persepolis West excavations found a buried layer of ash and pottery from the Achaemenid period, but no evidence of permanent architecture. We can probably assume that this area even a full kilometer away from the center of action, was part of the semi-permanent city of tents and wagons that followed the king around. As you extend further out, there is evidence, both written and archaeological, for self-contained villages in the immediate Persepolis sphere in basically all directions. The most famous historical site in that category, and... I apologize to anybody who knows Persian pronunciation better than me, is undoubtedly modern Estaker. In Middle Persian, it was just called Staker, and under the Achaemenids, it may officially have been known as Parsa Stakra, meaning the fortress or strength of Parsa. It sits at the north end of Shahikhu, the mountain that hosts the Persepolis Terrace. And yes, that is also the modern Persian word for swimming pool. There is a connection that I'll cover some other time. We don't know much about Achaemenid Estakra. Based on the name and its later history, it may have been a military outpost intended to defend the Persepolis region without hosting a full military garrison at the palace. As time wore on, it seems to have gained some additional importance. Looking just a bit past the current point in our narrative, Artaxerxes II built a temple dedicated to the Yazada Anahita in Estakra, suggesting it may have become more of a residential or political site by the 4th century BCE. Looking even further ahead in our narrative, after the coming of Alexander and his Macedonians and Greeks, Estakra was potentially the most important and defensible site left standing in Parsa. It soon transitioned to the provincial capital, and the new local rulers of Parsa actually hauled stone from the ruins of Persepolis around the mountain 
and use them to build new structures in the new capital. In terms of Achaemenid grandeur, the most exciting site in the greater Persepolis area has to be Tule Ajori, near the modern town of Firuz, also called Firuzi, with two O's if you're looking on Google. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Located about five kilometers from the palace and three from the outer fringes of Persepolis West, Tol-e Ajuri is just one of several mounds of earth outside of Firuz that was identified as the Firuz Archaeological Complex by archaeologists for many years. From the Arabic word tal, meaning hill, these mounds are called tal or tel or tol, depending on regional variation, or tepe, chalka, or hoyuk, depending on Turkic and Persian naming conventions. They're all basically the same word, and basically every version appears somewhere in Iran. There's a general set of characteristics, like being geologically out of place and a little too round, that usually signal to archaeologists that a big hill of dirt is actually covering some large, man-made structure. Sometimes that's a town, a whole city, or just one monumental building. The mounds outside of Firuz are obvious sites of archaeological interest, but ultimately, not all that exciting so far as most of the public was concerned for many years. At the northeast end of the Firuz complex, there's some evidence of a small residential palace, and many of the surrounding tolls have shown evidence for some minor level of inhabitation during the Achaemenid period. In that regard, it was no different from a dozen other sites scattered all around the Persepolis area. Evidence of a stone pavilion here, possible foundations from a building there, but never anything sprawling and monumental. In 2014, there was another dig at the site. This is pretty routine. 
Every few years, as technology changes and new grad students need things to write about, archaeological teams will poke around at promising sites to see if they can't find something new. Even the earliest excavations at Tal Ejuri recognized that it was potentially promising. Early digs found a mud brick wall decorated with Mesopotamian designs, but it was reburied and left for future efforts after being catalogued. Then, the 2014 team started a new analysis, and their experience was surprisingly unique. Up to that point, the working theory had been that Tole Ajuri was some kind of nobleman's tomb, and maybe not even a Caymanid. But that's not what they found. Instead, they slowly uncovered a full Achaemenid palace surrounding support buildings and a monumental gate covered in glazed brick in the style of the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. While glazed bricks and Mesopotamian-esque designs were always a feature of the Iranian plateau, such direct parallels with Babylon itself were not. Analysis of the chisel marks on the stonework put the last nail in the coffin. This was very clearly an Achaemenid site from the time of Cyrus the Great or Cambyses. Chisel marks may sound like a weird telltale sign, but they are actually a recurring theme in Achaemenid archaeology. Right around the reign of Darius the Great, toothed chisels with ridged edges became more common than straight-edged tools for carving stone. Persepolis has tooth marks, Pasargadai does not. At Nakshe-Rostam, the tower known as the Kaaba Ezartosht has tooth marks, but the nearly identical Zendan Esuliman at Pasargadai does not. It's actually fairly reliable, and the so-called Gate of Cyrus at Tule Ajuri fits the older style. Cyrus is an exciting, dramatic, and famous figure, so the gate and the accompanying palace were immediately associated with him. In reality, they could have come after his death or simply have been a local noble's residence rather than anything royal. Still, the palace's presence near Persepolis has changed perception of the whole area. It has always been assumed that the Persepolis area was home to administrative centers and villages before Darius chose the site for his palace. However, evidence of possible royal residences in the area indicate a much greater level of importance than we had previously assumed. Whether or not the Gate of Cyrus and its palace continued to function after Persepolis was built, or if they were downgraded and abandoned, is unknown. It seems unlikely that they were destroyed because they were not scavenged, and archaeologists even uncovered largely intact sections of the building. In its broadest sense, Persepolis also included many other villages, freestanding temples, noble estates, and miscellaneous structures. Some of these have been discussed before, or at least referenced, but none of them really rise to the level of being noteworthy in this episode. However, there are at least three other sites in Parsa that should draw our attention. 
if for no other reason than I feel bad for neglecting it, I would like to start by revisiting Pasargadai itself. The original palace capital and elaborate garden of Cyrus the Great. Update, it's still there. Yeah, that's basically it at this point. Even though it was more than a century old, Pasargadai had changed very little in the time between Darius the Great and Darius II. And it really wouldn't change at all in the future, either. Even after being abandoned, it just kind of sat there. Once it had been superseded by Persepolis, Pasargadai was a mostly ceremonial and religious institution that occasionally hosted members of the royal family. Its greatest significance was really as a place to coronate the new king because that ceremony involved physically emulating Cyrus in a number of ways. Everything from all the way back in episode 11 was still there. There was a gate and a palace, but most of the complex was religious in nature. The Zendan es Suleiman remains a mystery, but probably had something to do with royal burials because it was duplicated at Nakshe Rostam. There's also the tomb of Cyrus the Great himself, which was surrounded by a low wall to separate the house-like tomb and the altars outside from the rest of the complex, while the local magi made sacrifices in Cyrus's honor. There was also a more typical temple area to the north, but none of this was new and nothing had really changed or been added so far as we know. The surrounding area doesn't bear out much interest either. There's a cave accompanied by some buildings of unknown purpose, but identifying it as a tomb seems plausible. Adapting caves or carving them out of the rock as tombs was an Achaemenid tradition in the style of the Nakshe Rostam burials. Some were more or less elaborate. There were some farms and other permanent buildings of unknown use. There were also two fortified areas. One was a true fortress with battlements and arrow holes and everything like that, while the other was relatively mundane buildings surrounded by very large walls. Their exact purpose is obviously unknown, but it was clearly military, probably like early Estacra. Then there are two royal sites that are basically mysteries to us. The Greek and Roman geographers, Ptolemy and Strabo, both identified four royal residences in the Persian home province, rather than just the more famous two. Persepolis and Pasargadai had more political roles, and we know where they actually are, which helps with modern notoriety. But both geographers also identify Teoke and Gabai as homes for the King of Kings. The Royal Road Network crossed the whole span of the empire, but in any given region, it clearly had a few points of interest that it was trying to reach, and then the infrastructure just trailed off as you got further away. Persepolis and Pasargadai were the western and eastern terminals in Parsa. 
but the Royal Road also ran north to south in connection with the larger route to Media and the city of Ecbatana. One important location along that northern route would have been the Behistun inscription. At the northern edge of Parsa, you would find the city of Gabai, Old Persian Gabash near modern Isfahan. The actual location of Gabai is unknown, but we know the general route of the royal road. Gabai served an important function for the seasonal movement of the court. When traveling in state, with the full royal retinue moving all of their belongings by chariot and carriage, the king was moving at a snail's pace, and the tail of the procession could feasibly start moving almost a full day behind the actual head. Even if a royal messenger on a series of well-rested horses could make that trip in a day, the court was not going from Persepolis to Ecbatana that fast. Instead, they would stop over in Gabai, and probably a few other nobles' homes. Gabai would also have a valuable function for local administration further from Persepolis and a palace for royal women and princes to use while in Parsa, but not with the king's court. We know members of the royal family traveled freely at times, and this would be one potential residence. In the south, Gabai's counterpart of Teoke may have had a similar role for the extended family, but it was also explicitly identified as a true royal residence. Known as Tamukan in Old Persian and Elamite, Teoke was a coastal palace that received some work under Darius the Great and Xerxes near modern Borazjan. The coast of the Persian Gulf has grown and shifted significantly over the last 2,500 years, and Borazjan was probably closer to the coast at the time. Though laborers from Persepolis were sent to work at Taoke, the Persepolis archives mostly suggest that it was outside of Persepolis's administrative sphere, and would have had its own administrative complex. However, nothing about that demands any kind of royal, political, or cultural significance. There was no practical need to visit that city as king. But anybody who heard me say coast a minute ago should know that there didn't need to be a practical reason to visit Taoke. Based on the Greco-Roman sources and the Persepolis archives, it seems likely that this was the Achaemenid beach house. This palace has actually been identified, and some preliminary excavations were very promising. Two hypostyle halls lined with columns are closer in style to those at Pasargadai than later Achaemenid sites, suggesting that Taoke could actually have been a very early residence, even for Cyrus. In one of those halls, even some of the color has been preserved. The columns were not universally in the dramatic Achaemenid bowl style from Persepolis, but they were carved from a combination of black and white stones for a different kind of striking appearance. 
at least one wall in the same audience hall was decorated with a base layer of green plaster. Once again, that's an interesting departure from the typically red color scheme at Persepolis. A 2005 excavation noted the presence of an Achaemenid bas-relief and even a cuneiform inscription, though there's no word on any translation for that. Hopefully, we'll know before another decade passes. The reliefs also point to the very early date for the Teoke Palace. One of the reliefs shows a king being shaded by a parasol, very similar to several scenes at Persepolis, but the handle in this case is more than twice the size, possibly indicating a rougher and less well-honed craftsman. Interestingly, there's no evidence of Persian inhabitation at Liyan, the traditional Elamite port city nearby, that even had something of a sister-city relationship with Anshan. Whether this reflects a deliberate snubbing of the older city, or just waning fortunes in favor of Taoke, is not known. Further afield, Ekbatana is still just as deep between modern Hamadan as ever, and Babylon just kept chugging along. We've discussed Babylonian society a fair bit in recent episodes, and the city hasn't changed that much architecturally since Xerxes tore down the city walls. Over in Elam, Achaemenid Susa seems to have had a very similar setup to Achaemenid Persepolis. Though it is a bit harder to track urban sprawl underneath of modern Shush. That said, if you look up aerial imagery of the modern city, the ancient city was more or less the giant empty area in the middle. The city walls ran along the Shahor River, but for the most part, Susa II shows very little evidence of expansive, permanent buildings. There's the Palace of Darius the Great, which we last saw being reconstructed from fire damage, in the time of Darius II, a few outbuildings to the east that could be noble residences, and not a whole lot else to note. South of the palace, there was a large stone building that archaeologists took to calling the Donjon more than a century ago, and the name stuck. In the Hellenistic period, the Achaemenid Palace was largely abandoned, and this became the heart of the city, suggesting it may have been the local equivalent to the Persepolis treasury. Aside from that, Achaemenid Susa was shockingly empty. There's no evidence of other permanent buildings or even religious structures. It's baffling even under the assumption that most of the court and their entourage were living in tents. Even construction in modern Shush rarely brings anything of note to the surface. The surrounding area, though very well excavated, hasn't revealed anything exciting about the Achaemenid period. There were some small shrines, medium-sized farming villages, and major roadways. All the stuff you'd expect for an important city, but nothing striking. The Achaemenid capital cities if you even want to call them cities, 
were strange by most modern standards, and even the standards of their own time. The Greeks and Judeans obviously failed to understand the actual layout of far-off Susa, and Persepolis was just an enigma. You have to wonder if even the Babylonians, living just across the mountains, really understood the environment of Achaemenid Parsa, with its far-flung palaces and migrating royal court. Hopefully, future excavations will give me an excuse to revisit this topic one day, but for now, it's time to move on. Next week will be a bit different. I have been asked to review a new biography of Cyrus the Great. We'll see my thoughts on King of the World, The Life of Cyrus the Great by Matt Waters. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can find that at historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's also where you'll find things like my bibliography, the new podcast merch store, and the support page where you'll find stuff like affiliate links, sign-up links for Intelligent Speech Conference and the History Buffs newsletter that I write for, or the Patreon page where you can sign up to get exclusive deals on new podcast merchandise, bonus episodes, and ad-free listening. If those sound interesting to you, go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Of course, you don't have to spend money to support me, and not everything I just listed is inherently pricey, but you can always tell more people. That is one thing I would really like to see and I would really enjoy hearing about. You can do that on social media by going to History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or just at History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.